Hello, this is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager, a podcast about history. I would just like to announce that this podcast is very not safe for work. So if you're listening to this around children or at the office or whatever, you might either want to listen to this at home or give it a skip. We talk about um, some pretty dark themes in this podcast. And also there's a few... You know, dirty words, things like that. But mainly this is for the dark themes in the podcast. But that said, it's a really good podcast. Uh, This is episode 68 of the History Voyager. The podcast with Rick Gideons. He is an Afghanistan veteran. He's also a, or was, a paramedic uh, in the bi-state area of Kentucky and Indiana. It's a very interesting podcast, and I give it a good recommendation to listen to, but don't listen to it at the office or around children. All right, that's it. Have a good day, and I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too, and I'll see you later. Bye. Awesome. Hello, this is Benjamin Kitchings of the History Voyager. This is episode 68 of the History Voyager. And I'm going to talk to Rick Gideons today, and he is a lot of things. Among them, a veteran. Let's see, you're trying to do a podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, uh, and you're also an EMS and a stay-at-home dad. Uh, well, I'm no longer. Uh, I'm not long. No longer currently an EMS. I have. Uh... Medically retired, I broke my legs back in May of 2019, which then kind of led to a recovery of my injuries that didn't fully heal. So I was, wasn't able to, to get back on the ambulance, but that afforded me the opportunity to become a stay-at-home dad, which I think in the long run has been a lot more fulfilling for me on a personal level. Okay, I heard you off air, or I guess off the recording. I heard you deal with your kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's uh, yeah. um, yeah, he he is one hundred percent attached to my hip, twenty four hours a day. So it's uh, sometimes he he gets a little bit uh separation anxiety sometimes whenever, and he just gets excited or wants to tell me something that that he saw. Wow. So it's it's really cool. I would imagine. Okay, let's uh, let's back up. Let's back way up. All right, way way back. Okay, now you were in, okay. Do you want to handle this chronologically, or okay? How uh, do you want to handle this? Um, yeah, we can we can handle it uh, chronologically as far as all right. How far do you want to go back? Well, you had said that you had <laughs> met Dave Chappelle. Oh <laughs> I man, a, I am a big Dave Chappelle fan. Yeah. Uh, big, big, big. So, uh, did you meet Dave Chappelle after you were a veteran or before you were a veteran? No, this was, this was way before. I, I believe I was 17 at the time. And it, it's actually a, it's a really funny story and also is very dated based on the events that were going on that contributed to the overall story. Uh, okay, well. Why don't we back up and, and talk about the dating of the all right, let's let's go in the wayback machine, kids. Okay. <laughs> You're all making right. me feel old. 
Well, you know, <laughs> something happened today. Something I was reading today, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, my God. My son will come to me, and he'll talk to me about something, and I'm just like, I I have no idea what you're talking about. And then it's just like, I'm I'm lost. So, and I'm okay with that though. Um, now that I'm in my thirties, I think that yeah, I can relax a little bit. Well, the thing is, like talking about like you know being old or whatever, like not you know just out of phase or out of touch or whatever. Yeah, I've got I've got this podcast, and uh, I'm really thinking I need to get on TikTok. <laughs> I'm like, how do I? why like how do i do that why do i do it what do i do plus it's chinese spywares do i want chinese spyware maybe not i don't know <laughs> yeah i uh, i've also uh did the tiktok consideration uh there for a bit and i was just like there's there's no way like i i have no idea where to even begin with that i'm I'm good with YouTube. Yeah. I, I've started the podcast, which seems a little bit more accessible for me in my age versus posting videos on TikTok, which I, I still don't fully understand what that is, but I'm, uh, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was, it, it reminds me of uh, Vine. I don't know how old that, that <laughs> it makes me, but it seems like it's the same thing with a just yeah. all right uh, let's, uh, let's back okay let's go do you want to start at how you met Chappelle or why it's do you think uh, it's dated that you met Chappelle yeah or, yeah we can go ahead I can go or, ahead and go ahead let's talk about how old are you 34 okay for the purpose of this conversation we'll pretend that we're the same age okay uh, <laughs> Talk about, let's have a conversation. How revolutionary was Dave Chappelle when Dave Chappelle was massively huge? Oh, I know just from me, I, I've always, like, I've been a Dave Chappelle fan before. Like, I remember him playing the comedian role in Nutty Professor. Like, was like a no, like barely any screen time and then half baked and his comedy. So as far as I was yeah. concerned, I think that Dave Chappelle's style and his forwardness really resonated with me as far as what I felt like my sense of humor was and what, and how I usually kind of portrayed my sense of humor. So for me, he was heavily uh, influential in, in my comedy era. In my comedy diet, right. Yeah. I mean, like, he was talking about... I mean, I saw him before the Chappelle show. Like, I knew who he was before the Chappelle yeah, show. Yeah, 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 same. I don't remember how I knew who he was, but I know I had seen his bits and things like that. But when I'm not... he did the Clayton Bigsby bit, oh. I lost it. Oh. That was hilarious. And it was... It was so like, and that was the thing about Dave Chappelle, though, is that he he pushed so many people outside of a comfort zone, and I think with that, it really helped a lot 
of people kind of see things differently almost by making fun of such a serious and long lasting kind of struggle that has been going on in America. I think by adding humor to that, it allows people to let their guard down and really kind of investigate the kind of nuances of of things like that. Like whenever he did Clayton Bigsby and, and the other, go ahead. Or the more famous bit about like, how old is 15? Really? All I'm asking is how old 15 is really. Uh, Right. And when you look at that, the one way it's really funny, like it's really, really funny. But when you strip out the comedy and you really look at what he's saying, that's when it, as a white person for me, that's when it really just kind of goes, okay, wait a second. Yeah. He's making a point here. He's making a real point. Yeah. And then like, I've been actually, I've been following the whole, like since he came back, like his 12 year hiatus, like who first off turning down $50 million and going to on a 12 year hiatus, like you don't just, up and decide to do something like that. That is something that has been kind of brewing and building up and, and gaining a lot of momentum to, to do that. And then to finally hear Dave Chappelle's side of that story was heartbreaking. Yeah. Somebody had, when that was not when it first happened, but a couple of years after it happened, I had a, a black person that I really, really knew. And we had a conversation about it. Like we had an actual conversation about it's really a trip for, for a black person to be that well liked by white people. Yeah. Like why, like, why do they like me? What am I saying that they might be misinterpreting or whatever kind of thing? Yeah. I think Dave Chappelle even kind of elaborated on that because I think that there was some sort of uh, strife between like within himself about, you know, making these kind of racially charged skits and jokes to, to make a point and then finding out that the point was being missed and it was just being laughed at for its content. And I think that is something that really would weigh heavy on somebody, especially somebody who is trying to, express their feelings however they they feel when you put something out there and then you don't get that kind of expected response i think that is is a heavy thing to to also try to carry around right okay now the reason i wanted to have this Chappelle conversation was because there might be people that listen to this podcast that don't understand like how big he was at the time. All right. So you met Dave Chappelle. So please tell me that story. So I don't like, I can't say the exact year. I'm not really good with dates. I know that's not, that's kind of counterintuitive for a show about history, but um, it was during the, his Blackzilla tour, which was like the Dave Chappelle after he blew up comedy tour. And I was I was like, I, I was 17. I know that I was under the age of 18, but I'll get to that, to why I know that in a minute. But so 
I was a frequent skateboarder. I had skateboarded from the age of like 13 till about 19. And then I joined the army at 20. But um, so I would go to the skate park. Most of my time was spent down there. And a buddy of mine called me. and was like, hey, man, you need to get down here. Dave Chappelle's at the skate park and he's handing out tickets to his show. I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, I wasn't able to get there in time. So by the time that I was able to get there, he had already left to go do his show and stuff. So I just ended up just skateboarding because I was already there. So why not? Um, was this around 2003? I'm just Googling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think it's... Yeah, that sounds about right because the skate park, I think, in my town opened up uh, 2000 or 2001. And so, yeah, it was roughly about summer of 2003. But Okay. So I'm just, you know, doing my thing. Uh, a couple hours later, I look over and it's just, it's just Dave Chappelle. Like, it's probably one o'clock in the morning and it's, it's just him on a skateboard skating around and there's maybe 20 people at the skate park right now. And I just, I lose it. <laughs> and I, but then I'm like, I think to myself, all right, pull it together. Don't make a scene. Just casually be in the area <laughs> where he is. And maybe you can spark up a conversation. So at the time I was, I wouldn't say that I was really good, but I was a lot better than average at skateboarding. So that was kind of what I used as my ticket into the conversation. So I started kind of going in and skating around the bowls and kind of carving around, which is, you know, if you look and you see like on the half pipe, how they go back and forth, it's like that, but in a forward motion, like around a different kind of shape. And I do something, and I I just, out of the corner of my ear, I just hear, man, that shit was dope. <laughs> like from, and I was like. <laughs> like oh, my God. And, and for those, <laughs> hang on. For those of you who have heard the Dave Chappelle that's timbered by uh, cigarettes or Jewel or maybe some marijuana. I don't yeah, know. yeah. But he used to have this incredibly, at least on stage, high-pitched voice that was really fast and super funny. Please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, like, so I hear, man, that shit was dope. So I, I come out of the bowl, and it's just Dave Chappelle in front of me, five feet away, and he just goes, man, how'd you do that? So I start talking to Dave Chappelle about skateboarding techniques and how to actually skateboard. And that that was basically the gist of our conversation, because uh, another there was a uh, a woman that I knew, and she had owned a business down there that was a kind of like a hostel for skateboarders out of town that was near the skate park, so they could come and stay there for five or ten bucks a night, get a bed, and she had somehow been in communication with uh, Dave Chappelle. And so she came down there to meet him and him and his manager were going and her were going to go up there and uh, smoke some weed. And I was like, oh, no way. Like I was brimming with excitement. 
until his manager pulled me aside and was like, hey, um, so about everything, I kind of feel that with all the R. Kelly stuff that just came out recently, that it wouldn't be a good idea for oh, Dave to yeah. be seen in public with somebody underage or to even be around somebody underage while you know doing something like that because it, he was huge like i i can't even like begin to explain it's, how big it's he was. hard to explain to people today right it's really really hard to explain to people today in the day and age of twitch and twitter and a gazillion channels and youtube and how big dave chappelle was it's really hard for me to convey to the youth of today and to the, I guess, the people that were too old for Dave Chappelle. Right. Uh, how big Dave Chappelle actually was in about 2003, which is about when you saw him. Uh, right. Like that was the pinnacle of the Dave Chappelle yeah. currency. Like, Everybody wanted Dave Chappelle. And I suppose, I mean, I suppose we should talk a little bit, if you want, just for context, what exactly that manager might have meant by the R. Kelly situation. Because I know what he meant, and you know what he meant. Yeah, I know what he meant. Dave Chappelle, like, sung the song, like, I want to piss on you. Like, it was been, like, it came out that there were tapes. Dave Chappelle had an entire bit where he was making, had an entire series of bits where he was making fun of R. Kelly's, shall we say, let's be generous. Uh, You know, R. Kelly at the time was kind of a a freak. Yeah. he He had, shall we say, sexual predilections which weren't exactly I think the word statutory probably comes into play there yeah yeah, yeah. statutory thanks statutory rape and by the way people uh, I made a command decision this is a not safe for work episode I'm gonna put a stinger on the front but hey not safe for work sorry no 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 I've, <laughs> I've already I've already cleared that with the Apple people. Okay, guess. okay. When you when you do a and we can talk about this later in the episode. Yeah, yeah. But when you do a podcast, you need to tell Apple that you're not safe for work. When you tell Apple you're not safe for work, you can do with a couple exceptions, you can basically talk about whatever you want to talk about. Just saying. I appreciate that information and uh, duly noted. But uh, but yeah, so I may I had to make the command decision a while back that uh, hey, History Voyager is a not safe for work podcast. So, and I'm glad I did, and I haven't looked back. <laughs> yeah, I think that most definitely just knowing who I am and just kind of how my mind works, that not safe for work is probably a good title to have <laughs> for myself. Hey, that's a good title to have for a podcast, man. That's yeah. a good title to have for a podcast. All right, but hey, let's. I didn't mean to, to wreck the oh, Dave Chappelle train. Oh no, no, you're fine. This is. Uh, <laughs> I'm enjoying this quite, uh, quite a lot, actually. I. Yeah. 
but uh so i wasn't like i wasn't too upset with the the not being able to go because the reason why i felt was so funny and just so much a part of like just who dave Chappelle was because he had just come out with the r kelly like the whole R. Kelly bit, and then to get denied to hang out with him solely based on R. Kelly was like, and then like fast forward to now with him being like convicted and and, and arrested this year. So that's it kind of R. Kelly, that's R. Kelly being convicted and arrested. Yeah, 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 not yeah. Not Dave Chappelle. Right. R. Kelly convicted and arrested of pedophilia, not Dave Chappelle. Right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But so um, eventually they, they, he did come back. His manager came back and was like, hey, you know, sorry about, you know, everything. Here you go. And he gave me a full-size Dave Chappelle show poster that was autographed. It was like, much respect, Rick. Peace, man. Like, and I still have, I, I have it rolled up oh, upstairs today. Oh, don't, don't, don't ever let that go. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, it's, but. See now, I, but I feel bad though because the like Dave Chappelle's basically boycotting and telling everybody to boycott the Dave Chappelle show because he was never paid for it, and that's he was like paid, but he wasn't paid the uh, syndication or the like. They never paid him the when he got that. He was supposed to get okay. He was supposed to get what was at that time an astronomical salary bump. Yeah, he was. I think it was like fifty thousand. Or 50 million, 50 million, 50 sorry. Million. And he never got it or, or however you, whatever, whatever. Right. It All right. So, wow, that must be cool. So we're 2003-ish. So Did how that. do we get from there to to Iraq or to Afghanistan? Um. So we can go ahead and uh, whenever I had... Moved forward from that, I had I spent a lot of time in kind of unsupervised and left to my own devices. I moved out roughly a little bit after that, and I got really into uh, drinking and alcohol, like drugs, so to speak. Nothing super heavy, but just enough to not be a functioning citizen. And I realized that, and I had no means of getting away from it without by my own means. So I, I didn't have the money. I didn't have the knowledge or anything to, to kind of separate myself from that lifestyle. So I knew one way to do that. And I joined the military in 2006. I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, where I uh, became an infantryman. Then moved to Fort Hood, where I was uh, stationed at. Fort Hood, Texas. Yes. Is that right? Fort Hood, Texas. Talk um, to me about uh, what was uh, what was Army life like in Fort Benning and Fort Hood? So, Army life is like a basic training. I think I had the... The best time. I don't. I know that you don't really hear that often, but looking back on it, like during it, it was like this sucks. But looking back on it, I think that it was an experience that not 
a lot of people can can say that they have and it also afforded me a lot of uh insight and and understanding and discipline that I've carried with me up until this point which I think everybody should have some sort of kind of understanding of that and, and how that works. Because for me going in the military, it was a shock to my system. I didn't have much discipline growing up much, many rules, never had to rebel against anything. So joining the military, it was like strict, like do this, do that, do that. But it wasn't, Anything that I felt was overboard, and I had—I mean, I got a, a lot of great stories. There was a, a one time that my drill sergeant came in, and he was mad about something. I, I don't know what, but uh, he sat down in the chair, and he said, I'm going to smoke all of you until I sweat. And now, when they say they're going to smoke you, that means that you're going you're gonna to do a lot of different exercises push-ups, set-ups, you know, he's mad, so he's going to take it out and sweat, basically. And my first reaction was to say, that's not fair, Drill Sergeant, you're sitting down. So I got labeled a smartass very early on and paid dearly for it. How did you get paid for it? I mean, what happened, repercussion-wise? Um... I think that they were just a little more, I was just a little bit more on their radar because of it, because I did have a very kind of sarcastic nature about myself that I would, it got to the point though, that I would try to see what I could get away with, like push it a little bit, uh, just cause that's in my nature. Once I got, once I get comfortable in a situation, it, it it's more about me trying to push the boundaries of that and to see, to find out my place in it and and it, it was a good it was a good experience for the most part okay um so you got i don't know you're gonna have to refresh my memory are you uh are you guys considered a, a post 9-11 veteran or uh yeah or, or, yeah we're okay. we're post 9-11 veteran i got the post 9-11 gi bill so okay okay how is that? What's that like? Um, the post nine eleven GI Bill. I, I to be honest with you, I, I never, I haven't used it. Um, I ended up getting out of the military and getting almost going right in. I think it was like a year later. I went into EMS to get a change of pace from like the the military. It's like EMS is considered like a paramilitary organization sometimes. So they do rank structure very similar. So it was more of a easier transition into that kind of role, but it, it was nowhere near like it was nowhere near uh, as organized or structured as the military. And then from going from infantry to a, you know, a medical role was a, a transition as well that I thought was needed. Okay, when you say infantry, you mean you mean army, right? Correct? Yeah, army, infantry, the grunts, uh, <laughs> the guys. Okay, what was uh, when we're at when you're at Fort Hood? Um, how did you 
not how did you go to Afghanistan, but uh, so you're in Afghanistan as an EMS or as a medical medic or what? No, I ended up going uh, to Afghanistan as an OSHA cert- or an OSHA specialist. Uh, okay, tell me what that is. So basically, with that is um, it was through the f- I think it's the 404. Uh, something I can't remember the exact uh, the exact name of the 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 unit, but it was basically they were a mechanic unit that would uh, they did all the service operations on all the Humvees, MRAPs, Max Pros, and so anything anything anytime that anything broke on one of those that they would fix it. They would come to them, and they they were also working. Uh, on this initiative where they were refurbishing old Humvees and then giving them to the Afghan National Army. So that was another big component. So my job was to, I would wake up about 5.30 a.m. in Kandahar, go down to the helipad and take a two-hour flight to a random small base somewhere in Afghanistan. And my region was southwest Afghanistan. I've got, um, I've got uh, some videos somewhere of uh, flying me flying in a Chinook over probably the biggest uh, poppy field I'd ever seen in my entire life. Just because people think of Afghanistan as a desert, but once you get to like Southwest, you get more of a a lot more vegetation, and that's usually that's where like the the Taliban's bank is considered to be is in that region. Like I think it's the Helmand. Province so Taliban's uh, basically the, I guess the breadbasket of the Taliban money uh, comes right. from the okay from the poppies and, and the marijuana fields that they have because there was a lot of there was a big thing about not destroying because it was a, a hearts and hearts and minds campaign so it was they weren't destroying the poppy fields because they wanted to get the the natives on the side of the American forces and by their only source of income is growing poppy. So they, there was a big struggle back and forth with destroying that or not destroying it. And I guess the uh, military or the powers that be somewhere else decided not to destroy the uh, poppy, AKA heroin. Yeah. But it's, it's, I think the the biggest the biggest thing that I think I gathered from be, being in Afghanistan is I would say 90 95% of Afghans have no like they don't they don't know about 9/11 they don't know about Osama bin Laden they the only thing that they know is that there are invading forces coming in so it's one of those things that Americans come in and then as soon as they leave, the Taliban comes in and, and they take back over the town and, and redistribute all of the, the arsenal and stuff like that. Because uh, I was uh, stationed at Kandahar, which is basically it's an airport. It's a, an airport like the Afghan airport. So or no, that was, that's Bagram. And hold on, let me let me gather myself anyway. So. Uh, we were in Kandahar, which is, uh, it's a NATO base, so it's not simply American. It's got all troops from every, you know, 
country that is involved in the Afghanistan war. So you had Canadian, like they had in Kandahar, uh, they had this place called the boardwalk and it's like some shops, food restaurants. And then in the middle, they had a huge hockey rink, no ice, but just a hockey rink just for the Canadian troops. That's how much they love their hockey. And wow. And this is the base where you're stationed at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is uh, in uh, Kandahar, which is the – it's a NATO base. And then so you – right outside on the other side of the mountains, you have uh, – it's I think it's Kandahar City. And so what the the uh, the Taliban or the whatever the, the insurgents that were attacking the base, they would fire in to the base around – usually around 7.30 in the morning and roughly about – 6.30 at night because they knew that's when the most base activity was because people were going to breakfast or they were going to dinner. So at that time, they will fire in from inside the city because they know that NATO NATO rules will not allow them to be fired upon by, you know, retaliatory or to be retaliated against by uh, the base. So they would... Uh, one of their techniques that they would do is they will take a mortar tube and they'll fill it full of ice and then take a mortar and put it into that tube, which will give them, you know, maybe 30 minutes to get away. So by the time that the mortar fires, they're gone. Wow. Or they would take... Uh, they would take uh, tires and they would burn them on the roads to melt the asphalt overnight, dig up the asphalt, and bury an IED there and then cover it back up and be gone. Okay. So there's a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, different uh, dangers going on. But yeah, so I've got I've got video on... My computer, there was a, um, they call them these jingle trucks, which are like these kind of, have you, if you know what like a Mercedes kind of box truck looks like. I do. It's kind of like that, like the, the flat phrase, but they're all, they're all painted up in all of these crazy bright, vibrant colors. And they have all of this crazy like tassels and bells and everything hanging off of them. They're called the jingle trucks. And so they would line up at like four o'clock in the morning to get into the base because they would on Saturdays, they would allow the the locals to open up a bazaar on the base. So they would line up at like, I don't know, four or five in the morning to get in. Well, one day there, I think there was the entrance control point. The EPC one was the closest or two that was closest to my, uh, where I w where my office was, and there was a jingle truck that had detonated prematurely and completely just shook every single bit of the connex that I was in and like knocked everything what off the, the wall. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. <laughs> oh, you're fine. I'm really light on the lingo here. Can you tell me what a connex is? I apologize. Uh, Connex is basically, it's just like a shipping container that uh, they also call them chews as well, like wet and dry chews. Like it's basically a converted shipping container that's converted into like 
an office or a okay. um, living quarters. It's just it's basically the easiest way to kind of house a lot of people. But even before that, it was like I think it was tents before that. Okay. But yeah, so the 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 huge uh the they call it a VBID or vehicle born IED that was in one of the jingle trucks that coming in that exploded prematurely at one of the entrance control points near me that knocked a rattled everything and it was a kind of a big big ordeal for most of that day everybody we went on a complete lockdown which is uh, they have like so whenever there's an attack on the base they'll you'll get air raid sirens for the mortars and it's basically uh, just a pre-recorded voice that warns you that there's a rocket attack and to seek cover and then you would have to take your if you didn't have your IBA on, like you'd have like your vest, your bulletproof vest, like you'd have to put that on and then get into one of the bunkers that they had scattered throughout the bases, which were just these really tall Jersey barriers. And then they were all covered with sandbags to kind of give you the illusion that you'd be safe. But I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think there was ever a direct hit on one of those, but I'm not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, bet my life on surviving that but so that would happen and then but we went on uh, a ground attack for a little bit because of the the explosion out there it was precautionary to go on a ground attack which whenever they call out a ground attack means that there's actual physical like taliban enemy insurgent whatever on on the base Okay. So you like felt unsafe. Yeah. Like, uh, to say the least, yeah. And it was just one of those. I, I can even I can hear it in your voice right now. You're you're reliving a lot of this. Uh, a little bit, yeah. I, I think a lot of it is is mostly just kind of in my head. I don't. There's. Um, and that's an, uh, that's an, that's a whole other, other topic of, of discussion of journey that I've, I've been on for, uh, my PTSD and to, and getting treatment right. for that. Like I've been, I've been really on the ball with that this year after some, okay. uh, revelations that I've had just, sorry. No, 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 that's great. Um, so, okay, so after you got out of Iraq, I mean, sorry, Afghanistan, after you got out of Afghanistan, uh, then you got into the paramedics? Yeah, I, I got back into the EMS and eventually, so I was at a point of of kind of lost, so to speak, and I, I had no idea, I didn't know if I wanted to be back in EMS or if I wanted to try and, and move on to something new. So, um. So I, I ended up getting back uh, on the ambulance for a while while I was trying to figure out what my next move was going to be. And I had been partnered up with a paramedic who re- reignited my passion for EMS and my passion for 
the job and helped me get into paramedic class. So I had had started paramedic class in December of 2013 is whenever I started that. And it was until I think the, the class portion of it was till November. And then, let's see, let me try to. So I started in December of 2013. And in September of the following year, uh, my birthday celebration, we I had gone out to, I know this maybe sound like it's off topic, but I, I'll tie it back in here. So uh, it's my birthday of 2014, which is, uh, September. So it's, it's usually, it's a couple months away from my graduation. Uh, my partner at the time had showed up to my, my birthday at a karaoke place. We hung out for a little bit. He said he was tired and then left to go home is what he told me. And I got a call that was on a Friday. I got a call on Sunday from his boss because he didn't show up to work. And then Tuesday I got a call from his wife uh, he had been missing since the, and I was the last person that had seen him or talked to him. So four days after he had disappeared, they found his car about three or four blocks away from where I had the bar that I was, you know, had my birthday at. And he was, he had been, he was in the back of it deceased. So, with that, uh, I got the phone call probably about 2.30 in the afternoon, and I went down to where they found his vehicle, found his wife, and she was like, yeah, like they, did, they haven't said he's in there, but he's in there. And the last person that he had contact with wasn't me. It was a phone number that she had no idea who it was connected to, but she was able to f track that person down with that, by that phone number and, and find a picture and come to find out I was able to identify that person because I had known them from years and years previous. So the story is, is that he left from there from my party and, and then he went and, and he overdosed and they had dumped his body. The party had dumped his body. No, no, like so. All right, so he, uh, so my, uh, my, he left uh, my birthday and went to uh, this person's house, which is uh, a female that he had contacted through a website that was a known prostitute, oh. and then uh, did uh, heroin there, overdosed and died, and then she and an accomplice took his body put it into his car, drove it back to where the area where he had left from and left it there. And then wasn't, he wasn't found for like three or four days later. So I was able to identify the last person he spoke with and the party in question that dumped his body. So, they were they were able to make an arrest within I think two and a half hours of finding it, and then the following year, 
I ended up the following January. I ended up having to go and testify on trial for that. Wow. So, and I was still like, I still had to graduate paramedic class and still had to do all this other stuff. And I had all of this dropped down, dropped in on me. So it was one of those things that kind of, I, I used it as a way to help motivate me to, to do the best job that I could to represent him and to allow him to still be a part of bringing good into the world because through me and urging me to become a paramedic and, and helping me foster that he was still living through me is the way I saw it. So that played a really major role in my kind of mentality and the way that I, I saw my job as a paramedic. Okay, cool. Um, so being a paramedic, what are the typical, uh, typical is probably not the right word. Uh, what's your, uh, for lack of a better word. Okay. What's the garden variety paramedic call? So I would say that probably only 80% of the calls that I ever made were true emergencies. I would say the average call would usually consist of either Somebody with a minor ailment who thinks that it's worse than what it is, or there's a lot of what we would have called BS runs or, you know, bullshit runs because of the the nature of them. So it'd be, you'd be called out for 27-year-old male constipated. So, like, somebody... Dialed nine one one and was like, "Hey, listen, because I they're constipated. Because they're constipated. So, and then so that actually, if the age had been different, so let's say that the person was sixty five or you know an elderly person, and they called because they were constipated, that could constitute an emergency because of a severe bowel obstruction. You don't know how long it's going on, and and even with twenty seven year olds, it could be something serious. So you kind of you gotta have to." Keep that in the back of your mind. That wasn't this- there an actor? I'm sorry, the, the guy who played um, Bozeman. Chad was it Chadwick Bozeman? The guy who played the um, there was an actor who had bowel cancer, and he, he passed away recently. Oh, is that a symptom of bowel cancer? Uh, you know, I don't. I, I can't he honestly say. Robinson, he played, uh, God, he was in The Five Bloods. Jackie Ro- I don't remember his, I, his name. His name has left my consciousness right now. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So he it, played Black Panther. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Yeah. He had bowel cancer, and he was—he wasn't that old. Right. I I don't think that happens. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure that the like the constipation. Usually, nine times out of ten, usually when we got a call for somebody, usually under the age of I would say forty-five, 
but and that just depends on the area of town that you're responding on. You kind of make your you get your idea on on what could be going on based on a lot of different. You get a concept. Yeah, you get a concept. So nine times out of ten, if we get somebody in their 20s that calls for a bowel obstruction, it turns out to be related to opioid abuse because that, like, especially, like, um, it has a an effect on the on the bowel system. So it, it slows it. It causes uh, bowel activity to slow down, which will then cause... Uh, a buildup of constip or uh, of feces that will be constipated and can eventually turn into a uh, a problem. A problem, but most of the time, it's 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 never anything relatively serious. Or you know, you'll get like I've gotten a lot of calls for uh, tooth pain. Wow, and there's. Usually the ER is not going to do anything. They'll give you some antibiotics, but a lot of times it's they want to go to the ER and get some kind of pain medication. Well, I don't. Oh yeah, because they want pain meds, right? And it, I don't want to paint it as like that was everybody. I think that just given my time frame of being a paramedic and where I've worked at, kind of. So it's it's fair to say then that you're a paramedic, uh, kind of in ground zero for the o- opioid crisis. Oh yeah, and uh, I uh, I had I worked through one of the one of the areas that I worked in had the biggest epidemic of AIDS since the '90s, I believe it was. Whenever I was working there, from from oh yeah, I drugs. that. Yeah, I was. That was the. That was where I was working for a time at when that happened as a paramedic. So wait, do you mind me telling the internet like what state you're in? Um, no, I. I think that if they really wanted to find out, they could find out where it was, where I'm at. I don't like. I don't have any any objection well, there, to that. Well, there's this. I mean, Indiana, right? So yeah, Indiana had that really bad AIDS epidemic a while ago. Yeah. How, more, spe- more specifically, it wasn't even just the state of Indiana. I, we're talking about a, we're talking about a county that had maybe twenty three thousand people in it. It was I was whenever I was working uh, rural EMS, so I was working out in not the metropolitan. I had moved to a rural setting, and I think it was a population of like maybe twenty twenty three thousand people with a infection rate of I would say close to 200 300 people I think overall it was it might have been it might have been larger than that but I know that I had to I got a lot of specialized training on uh, like above and beyond just the required bloodborne pathogens class which kind of just is an introduction to bloodborne pathogens and how to kind of avoid mm-hmm. The epidemiology behind them, but and also they gave us uh, these gloves that are Kevlar line called Turtle Shell, so we would have to wear them when we made a run because so we didn't get poked with any needles that would have been on scene or on the person. So it was like we had to take a lot of extra precautions during that time. 
Okay. Um, I know the AIDS epidemic was, uh, at least in this part of Indiana or whatever that we're talking about, was during the uh, the governorship of Mike Pence. Yeah. In Indiana. So are we talking like, let me think, 12, 2012-ish? No, I think this was... Uh... I think this was probably 2014, 2015, maybe. Okay, okay, okay. All right. Um, Let's talk about, okay, so how long were you an EMS person? Uh, uh, for 12 years. Roughly, give or take. I'm, I'm technically, I'm still, I'm still have my license in the state of Kentucky, but I have uh, let my so, Indiana and national numbers lapse. Are you uh? So you're in a bi-state area there, Indiana, Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm about thirty minutes away from the the border of Kentucky. I live a little bit outside of Louisville. For anybody that knows where that okay. is, that's where like the the whole Brianna Taylor things going on there, the civil unrest. All right. Okay. So let's talk about. Um, wow. So I mean, the uh, the HIV outbreak that uh, we were just talking about was from 2011 to 2015. So we were both correct. Yeah, I knew it was because I was uh, part of that was I was still in college then and I was still uh, dealing with uh, numbers and demographic data on a daily basis almost. Yeah. And I remember seeing like Indiana had some real high numbers all of a sudden with AIDS. Yeah. And I remember there was a time when there was like CNN, Fox News. There was like just every newscast that you could think of in this small little town. And then here's me just like, boop, 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 like just this brand new kind of paramedic trying to get my feet wet with like, Learning because I went from an EMT at a a not as aggressive service, so their protocols and and as an EMT you you have. Wait, are are you guys? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, again, oh, you're fine. On the, again, light on the lingo. This is out, kind of outside my experience. Yada yada yada. Uh so let me. Okay, so you work for a private company that uh, contracts with the county. Is that right? Uh, no, at this, at this time I, I did prior to that. That's what, that's what I did. But this was actually, actually I was working for a municipality during this. So it was actually the county service. Okay. And how, how common would you say it is for, uh, private companies versus municipalities running EMS, EMT? Um, it's, it's, I think it's still a pretty, it's a pretty big thing. A lot of, so basically the way that it works is, is so the largest uh, ambulance company in the world now is American Medical Response. And so they will, they will come in to, a city or town and they will say we will it cost you let's just say it cost you a million dollars to run an ambulance service we will do it for six hundred thousand 
And so, and then sometimes like even, so um, one of the companies that I work for that was contracted to the 911 service in the county that I live in um, was a, it wasn't paid. Like it wasn't paid. So the only revenue that they would get would be from uh, the, the, cost of an, uh, the ambulance ride for the people that's the only incentive so you and a lot of cities and small towns are going to jump at that because it's it's going to save them money it's going to take a whole lot uh it's going to give them back a whole lot more resources and and take a little bit off their plate but also you you have to the the issue that I find with private EMS services is that it is about the bottom dollar and not about the service provided. Um, so there is a lot of kind of uh, let's see uncovered spots. So there would be there would be times that I would. I would do, you know, 12 runs in 14 hours. And that's, that's like hustling. That's because I think where I like in the small, uh, in the urban area that I worked, we were no further away from a hospital than I think 10 minutes was the longest distance to a hospital. So you, we were really close together. So it didn't take much time to pick up, drop off. And then reset for the next run. And it was never about the quality of the runs that that they were worried about. It was the quantity. So, and then EMS as a whole is facing a shortage, which then creates an issue with... You're the second person that's told me that. Oh, this is, this is, I mean... Ever since that, I have been like since 2009, I have heard the phrase EMS is feast or famine. So it's either you have an overabundance or you have absolutely nothing. Why do you think that is when you pull back? Well, the thing is, is that EMS is it's underpaid, it's underfunded, and it's underappreciated. So with the same amount of time that I put into learning my trade as a paramedic i could have became a nurse making probably twice as much as i was making as a paramedic there's just and that's one of the things too is that it's 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 long hours it takes a mental and physical toll on your body and so it takes a very i i kind of want to just say deranged person to stick with it for for an extended amount of time cuz it was it was one of those things that i noticed that like if you could make it 3 years in EMS you could you could make it as long as you wanted to like mentally if you were mentally able to yeah okay but now that I have uh, I have left that that the world of EMS, 
I have found it difficult to kind of transition back into uh, civil life, so to speak. Because what are some of the differences? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, we can talk about that. So let me try to get try to explain this. Like, so um, I'm going to try to explain it and in, in with uh, something. I, I like to use uh, similes and metaphors a lot of times. So I've always described it as uh, being institutionalized, kind of how you would expect a convict to try to assimilate back into civilized life is I think very, very similar to how with EMS, like I fell trying to kind of work myself back in because I don't, I had all of this. uh, I was very hyper-focused, very vigilant, always on guard in a fight or flight mode because I never knew when I was going to have to, to, to use that. So trying to back that down and not be so, I assume so aggressive because it was, there's a threat, handle it. And then, but now I don't have to, I don't have to have that kind of reaction speed anymore. Uh, and then with, with EMS, you're going to always have to accept a certain level of traumatic experiences, like going into work, you have to go in with the mindset that I could, I could see the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire life today. And I have to find a way to deal with that. And in the moment you, you really can't, you can't deal with it. You can't well on it and you cannot think about it as it's happening so you create i created this this kind of backlog of just traumatic things that i've had to push aside to continue to still move forward and and be effective at my job but now that i don't have that constant stream of traumatic experiences coming in that backlog is now there's going to be a decompression at some point. Right. So that's that's basically the the phase that I am at right now as far as transitioning. Yeah. Because I've had I had uh probably about about 3 months ago I had uh this internal revelation about myself and finally being away from EMS allowed me to kind of accept the fact that I do suffer from PTSD and that I have probably been suffering from it from, for most of my life. And, and that acceptance alone in itself was enough to, to help crack the ego that I had created to shield myself from all of those things. So with that kind with that being broken down i was able to to see those experiences in contrast to what normal society is and how kind of off base i had been in my interactions and my thoughts and 
and how I perceived reality, so to speak. I was perceiving, I wasn't perceiving reality as it was happening. I was filtering it through uh, my traumatic experiences and and allowing my my reaction to be to the traumatic experiences that are filtering reality versus just dealing with reality, if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes total sense to me. Yeah, I totally get that. Um, but wait, um, I, I've uh, I once I, I started on that path, I found uh, ketamine infusions, and and I did the ketamine treatment infusion. I heard about that. Uh, talk about that for a second, will you, please? Uh, so this is uh, this is probably one of my my most excited things to talk about for sure. This is a lot of uh, more exciting. Pop- Dave Chappelle. Uh, no offense against okay. Dave Chappelle. He is absolutely uh, yeah. the best, but. Yes. So these ketamine infusions to me, they do they do sound exciting for people with PTSD. But go ahead, say well, what you're gonna say. And I and I don't want to give people the this kind of. I don't want to oversell it and make it sound like this kind of miracle treatment. But from my experiences and and what I've seen change, it has been. And I think that there is definitely something to it. So for anybody that's not familiar with uh, what a ketamine infusion is, so ketamine is, was originally, it was a, used as a horse tranquilizer, I think. And it was, it was mainly used in like veterinarian uh, medicine. And so then they started using it for uh, an analgesic, which like, pain medication to, to reduce pain because of its disassociating property. So it, it completely, it disassociates your consciousness from your body and like the most basic explain explanation of it. So with ketamine infusions, there recently been studies to show that there, I'm not, I don't have the my notes uh, on it in front of me, but it's basically it has uh, an effect on the the synapses in the brain and creates more connections that allow the um, greater transfer of of serotonin and stuff like that. But it's still like in the very early stages of of re- of research, but the the main study that they that the infusions are based off of was i think it's like 87 to 90% effective as far as their clinical research and it's a session of six individual 1 hour infusions of ketamine and the it's basically the the dosage is going to be based off of your weight but once you get these infusions and then you after your sixth one, you have to do these boosters so far out. So now I'm now in the booster phase and I've got my next one is Saturday or, or Sunday, but 
they basically you basically get stoned and in a room they have like a laser light show that they can put on for you they have a cbd infuser um they can play music for you i listen to my own music but and then you go in you get this infusion and it it allows you to disassociate and it's it's such a, an abstract feeling that i that you have and the shift in your spatial awareness i think is what i noticed the most about it during it is that i i could feel like i like i would close my eyes and i could feel like i was on the ceiling looking down but also at the same time laying on my back on the floor and looking up so and those I think the they last about 45 minutes per infusion. And I after my first treatment, I came home, took a 4-hour nap and woke up and immediately like felt different. I was so my everything that I felt was so enhanced. So like my excitement, I was I, I was so excited about just the the most minute changes that I was feeling that I I broke down and I cried. Just not sad, not upset, but I was so happy that my body and my body didn't know how to express that level of joy that it just, I just started crying and laughing. I, I probably look like a madman. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds like you had a breakthrough. Absolutely. The, uh, I, my, uh, it has, my anxiety is, is all but gone, so uh, I don't have the very intrusive thoughts all the time, so that's a lot of the issues that I have. So instead of, so let's say that I made a run where, I, I made a tragic run, and it was, you know, at... Let's say it was just at a restaurant. Let's say that I made a run where something really bad happened at a restaurant. So now, before the ketamine, every time I wanted to think about that restaurant, I had to think about that run first to get to that restaurant. So, like, the trauma had rewired my brain to where I had to think about that run before I could think about the restaurant. And then after the ketamine, I don't do that, or I don't. I don't find myself like envisioning a scenario where where terrible things happen just out of nowhere. Like just driving down the road, and I'm like, "Oh man, what if that car flipped over and blew up?" And yeah, all of that. Like that's just kind of like know, I've had you know friends in law enforcement and. 
you know, people like that. And they talk about, you know, they talk about all kind of things. Like they see things that go sideways. Just they, they see the sideways-ness, I guess, so much. It's just something in their mind. Like that could always happen. Well, the, the, absolutely. It's you, when you operate for so long on the the kind of thought that anything could go wrong at any moment right now and I need to be prepared for that leads you to being hypervigilant and and being on edge and taking it out like being hyper aggressive having mood swings because you're always at your at your peak yeah. cognitive awareness and and it's just it it gets so tiring yeah and to to be able to kind of get away from that it, it's just the biggest relief off of my shoulders my entire life like i feel that I'm feeling emotions for the very first time, that I'm actually allowing myself to feel the raw emotion without any other of my insecurities or any of my experiences to taint that. Okay. Okay. Um... Wow. Okay, this... I feel like this is a good place to end the actual podcast. So let me uh, stop the recording. But hang on, I want to talk to you about. All right, I got before I do that. Do you want to talk about the podcast you're trying to set up? Or? Um, yeah, I can go ahead. And uh, it's not like it's still in really early development right now, but I do have a kind of a teaser that I put together. If you go to um, I, th I think right now it's on just about, I don't think it's on Apple yet, but I know that it's on Google, Spotify, and uh, Anchor, and uh, a lot of the other ones. But it's called Out of Service, a, a post-EMS podcast, which is basically going to be me talking about uh, overcoming my, my PTSD and, and my life in EMS and trying to transition into being a stay-at-home dad and as well as just kind of giving a a paramedics perspective on life in general so it'll it'll i think that it will be i think that hopefully um ems professionals will find it to be interesting and like to listen to it as well as non-ems professionals because i want to give a really just kind of raw and unfiltered look into what it's like to be in EMS and and to help shed light and and get a lot more structured mental health for that. So it, it's it's really it's a work in the progress. But if you guys want to go check it out, uh, I also have my. Yeah. I tell you what, email me the link. Okay. And I'll throw it up there. 
but you have a very, very compelling story, and I'm like so glad that we ran into each other on Reddit. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so uh, you have an incredibly compelling story. And um, and I, wow. I this 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 is literally just like that just just little tip on the iceberg here as far as uh as the, just the overall massive collection of of just life that I've lived oh i bet i bet you know i mean well i mean you know like people you know some people live you know, more lives than others at the same time, I guess. Yeah. Most definitely. But, I uh, Sometimes, like, when I, I try to recall things, it, it's, it's weird because it doesn't seem like it's the same life that I'm living now, you know? Boy, but, I know that. <laughs> but I, 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 I appreciate the opportunity to come on here and, and actually share my story with you and your listeners. It's something that uh, I'm really grateful for and I'm appreciative. Well, let me um, tell you what. Well, I ask all my guests this. Is there anything you want to tell the internet before we let it go? Yeah. Um, I just want, you know, we are all going through a, a very tough time together right now on top of everything that we're going through in our personal lives. So I would just like to tell people to be a little bit more understanding, be a little bit more patient, and just be a little bit more considerate and and to yeah. try to just put as much good into the world as possible. Because right. that's 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 what I want to do, and that's what I think has been really helping with me handling this year is to try to counteract the negative by making something positive and, and putting that out there. So I just all right. I would like to say that and check out my podcast whenever it's finished. That'd be cool too. Let <laughs> me um. Let me actually let me stop the recording okay. and I'm gonna uh talk to you off off air. Okay. Uh